Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that we get to be here together to hear from you through your word. And we get to respond to you in, in prayer and in song and in interacting with one another. I pray, God, for those in this room and those who are watching online. Lord, we pray that your spirit, spirit would be present with us and that we would be bonded together and unified in our pursuit of you. We need you to make that happen. Help us to be faithful to the calling this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage in, in Acts chapter 2 is essentially the, the beginning of the church. And like Robbie uh, talked about last week, uh, we had Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit is, is given. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells the hearts of believers and they are transformed. And then Peter preaches this incredible message and the Spirit indwells all these people and 3,000 and more come to faith in Christ. And then they turn to each other and they figure out, well, then how do we live? And what we see is that they are completely changed. They are never to be the same again. Like Robbie mentioned last week, it, we saw a different Peter on the morning of Pentecost than we'd ever seen before because that's what happens when the Spirit indwells us. We become different and we are never the same again. Their lives are different. Their lives are marked by different pursuits. What we see here is it doesn't say after those people um, were saved that, and they all returned to their regular lives. But now remember to give a shout out to Jesus every once in a while. That's not what it says. It describes something amazing and something glorious. And something that I have dedicated my entire life to pursuing. They devote themselves to seeking God together in both word and spirit. And, and this is the result as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Hold on just a second. Why don't you just do me a favor? As you're reading this, we just did this exercise with Bible Lab, like we're just teaching the um, upper elementary kids about this idea of when you're hearing like a narrative or them describing what's happening, it's so good to engage your imagination and to just imagine, like picture it. Don't just hear the words, but picture what's going on. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Doesn't that sound amazing? Like as I've said this before here, is that throughout the history of the church, people in ministry have been trying to pursue this. They've taken this passage and, and pastor after pastor, church planter after church planter, missionary after missionary has looked at this passage and said, how do we, how do we see this happen? And so we take different things from it and we try to figure out like, well, how, how do we like take this apart and how, what do we grab from it? And some people grab methods, some people grab principles. I mean, what do we do? We, we look at this, we say, well, they broke bread. Okay, so they have to break bread. And so then that spurs traditions where you say, okay, every time we're together, we need to break bread. We need to take communion together. And they say they, they, they broke bread. Okay, well, bread. Well, that means like, like no wafers, right? Like actual bread. Like no gluten-free. Right? Is that true? No. I mean, and they said their prayers. So they said their prayers. These were prayers that they were probably rehearsed or known from the Old Testament and the ones that had been passed down through tradition. So, okay, so liturgy is the answer. Like, as long as we just recite enough things together, then that's the answer. Or, no, 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 they met in homes. That's the key. So no, no church buildings. Just we have, to, we have to meet in homes. Daily they gathered together. And so we need to have daily gatherings. We need to make sure that we're doing that daily. All these different things get pulled out. In more Baptistic traditions, we tend to focus on they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so we say, okay, so we're just going to focus on the teaching. As long as we just teach the right things, then we'll be fine. Listen, all of those things have their places and have their merits and, and have their reasons. But... When I was just reading this over and over again and just thinking there's something that struck me and stuff that we've maybe talked a little bit about before. It's nothing brand new or anything, but, but I want to point out two things before we address any of the actual stuff that they're doing. One is their posture and the other is their context. Right? Their, their posture was one of devotion. It says they devoted themselves. A little word right at the beginning is a really important word. There's a lot of other words they could have used. They could have said they listened to the apostles' teachings. They considered the apostles' teachings. It says they were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Often this goes right to, like when we look at this, to saying like right to the teachings of the apostles to talk about um, the importance of the Bible. But we have this equally important word, devotion. It's not just the importance of the teachings, but it's the posture of the people towards those teachings and to the fellowship and to everything else. They were devoted. These are, these are strong words. These are like marital words. If you're devoted to someone, like devotion is considered like this deep commitment, like wedding vows. There's devotion in those. I mean, imagine being at a wedding where the, the wedding vows are like, I promise to be with you until someone better comes along. I mean, that'd be an entertaining wedding to be at, for sure. Or I, I promise to be with you as long as I can fit you into my schedule. As long as you don't change from the person that I think you are right now. That's not devotion. Devotion is a reorientation of one's life. It's 
a refocusing. It's a total commitment in one direction. That's devotion. So we can't talk about those other things that we'll see without understanding devotion. Because nothing that they experience, none of the things that we see happen to them, that we look at and we say, I want that, none of that happens with those things in and of themselves, with just pursuing a certain experience or teachings or any of those things. None of that happens without their devotion to it. I mean, think about it. We have more access. Consider our church today compared to the early church. We have more access to God's word, to the apostles' teaching, than any other people group in the history of the world. And it's not even close. We have God's word in so many ways. It's on your phone. It's in printed. All these kinds of different translations in almost every language. But we know we don't see what they saw in Acts. We don't have that same, we don't, would not say that our experience of the church is greater than their experience. We have more ability to connect with other believers from every part of the world than ever before. Like they were devoted to the fellowship. Like we have more ability to connect with one another. Right? We have more free time than any other people group in the history of the world. We are able to get farther and faster and more efficiently than any other people group in the history of the world. We can connect and talk face to face, like over video, with someone on the other side of the globe, with a Christian on the other side of the globe. And yet we are not more connected than the early church was. We were not more devoted to the fellowship than the early church was. We have more access to be able to break bread together. Every bit the ability to pray the prayers together. We have access to the same Holy Spirit. And I'm convinced The part of the reason why we practice these different things and we miss out on some of that is simply this little word of they devoted themselves. But there's another context in there too. Their posture was one of devotion, but their context was one of fellowship. Because see, they aren't just individually devoted. This is not some kind of personal enlightenment journey There's a context to all of it, an environment, and that is the fellowship, the church. They are together. Individualism for them is not a thing. We live in an age that that has become so individualized that we can honestly ask questions like, can I be a Christian and not be a part of the church? And it doesn't even seem like a strange question to us. seems like a legitimate question. I was listening to a sermon from Tim Keller, and he was pointing out that 86% of Americans believe that, that you can be. You can be a Christian and not be a part of the church. That's kind of a strange question. It's kind of like asking, can I be a son and not be a part of a family? It's kind of like, well, I, I don't even know how to answer that. It's a weird question, right? I mean, how, how is it that we could say that we don't need to have any regard for the church when Jesus 
prayed for the church with some of his last words. When he commissions the church. And most importantly, he dies for the church. Like, can a person be a Christian and despise the body of Christ? The church for whom Christ died? There is no context for obeying God outside of community. In Matthew 22, in the, the great commandment, Jesus gives them, he, he talks about the greatest laws when they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And he, and he says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he, he says the second, that's the greatest and the, the first commandment. He says the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says on, on these two commandments, all, like depends all the law and the prophets. So he's saying if you obey these two, then everything else falls in line. And we often take that and, and split it and, and, and kind of divide it into these two separate entities. We often categorize them as kind of like vertical relationship with God and horizontal relationship with, with others. And, and I've done that too as a way of kind of describing that. And there is some good in talking about that. Like I want to make sure that my vertical relationship with God is, is solid and my horizontal relationship with, with others is solid. But the problem with that is that it separates these two into two different pursuits. And it makes our love of God very individualistic. And it's not the case. We're not meant to just love God, but to love God together. That's the context of Acts 2. That they did not see themselves as 3,000 individual people who were saved, who are now going to pursue a relationship with God together, and they just happened to find some people around them that were kind of also doing the same thing, and so we're just near each other. They did not see it that way. What they saw is that they once were not a people, but now they are a people, that they have been saved as a people, as God's people. And that as surely as they were adopted as sons and daughters, that they now had brothers and sisters. These ideas of loving God and loving others are not two separate activities. And what we see here in this picture in Acts 2 is them pursuing the great commandment, but doing it together. Not separated. John talks about this in, in first. John, where he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So he's saying, like, we can't truly love others without the love of God, and a lack of love for others invalidates our love for God, it exposes it as fake. I'm going to say that again because I know that's the kind of thing that's going to get written down and misquoted and then upset about. You can't love others. You can't truly love others the way Christ has called you to love others without being loved by God. He is the source. And a lack of love for others exposes my love for God as fake. goes on in that chapter we love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I'm going to give you an example of where we see this in Scripture and how that plays out a little bit. In, in 1 Corinthians 8, I mean, early in the church, as the Gentiles and Jews were forming together, there were questions about what laws are we supposed to follow, what do we not have to follow, and dietary laws became a very big deal. And there is a big debate that arises. One group says we, we, should, we should not be eating meat that people have sacrificed to idols. Like you buy it in the store or whatever, and maybe that person, when they, when they kind of slaughtered that animal, they sacrificed it or they like, you know, worshiped another god with it. And, and there, were, there was a sect of people saying we should not eat that meat because it's been sacrificed to an idol. And then you had other people who were like, that meat's super tasty. And there's nothing about the idols. The idols aren't even real. And so like... That bacon looks really good, and it doesn't affect us at all, and so I'm just going to eat it. And this huge debate rises. And so they, they, Paul addresses it, and they're basically kind of looking to Paul and saying, Paul, who's right? We think it's better to not eat the meat. And this other group, and this group over here, so you're going to represent that group. You're, you're like, bacon's tasty. I'm eating it. You're like, hey, that's been sacrificed to idols. We're not eating it. And this group of people starts to get kind of indignant about it and saying, like, you guys are foolish. It means nothing. Idols are nothing. And they say, Paul, like, tell them. And this is what Paul says. He basically says, you're right. And you're wrong. He says, you have the right knowledge. Like, they're right. This meat sacrificed to idols means nothing because idols are worthless. They don't mean anything. It does not affect you at all. They're right. But they're the ones that are in sin. How's that possible? Like, think about all the debates you have and all you want to know is, well, who's right? And here Paul's saying, you're right. And you're the ones in sin. He said, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Do you see how these things are not separated? You can be pursuing God and somebody could be sitting there and going, okay, God, I know these idols don't exist. You gave us bacon. It's amazing. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat it for your glory. And meanwhile, your brother is being harmed by that because it's luring their heart into idol worship. And Paul says, you're sinning against Christ. I fear this describes the church a lot right now where we are right and we are in sin. And I fear that if we do not repent, and I do not know how God will deal with us, we have to have a category for, I think I am right in this truth, but I am sinful because I am destroying the one for whom Christ died. 
and thus I am sinning against Christ. May God give ears to hear. Look, you cannot separate obedience to God from love for your neighbor, especially in the church. So this is the context. They are devoted to pursuing God together. That's, by the way, that's why membership is a big deal here. We're, we're trying to like redefine that so that it's a big deal. It's not belonging. It's not about belonging to a club. It's not about having the right to vote. But it's about looking at your brothers and sisters and saying, I'm in. I'm devoted to this family. Like they were devoted to the fellowship, to the church, because Jesus died for the church. And they did not see obedience to God as possible apart from the people of God. And that's the lens that I want to look through. So I just, for the second half, I just want to look at those things then that we so quickly jump to, but say this is from a context of fellowship. They pursued the great commandment together. They loved God and loved one another, not as separate pursuits, but as one, not as individuals, but as a fellowship. They loved God and they loved others together. So first they loved, they loved God, right? Like in, in Acts 2, the very first one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they're devoted together to the teachings. What does that look like? One, it means it is a priority, right? Our, our, a priority to pursue God's word together. That has to be a priority. It can't just be something we add on or it's kind of like a bonus. Uh, our individualistic society has kind of turned the most important way to study this word is one-on-one, just me and God. But that's not how the early church saw it. These were letters meant to be read in community. They were read aloud to everybody. And they listened together. They were meant to be read together and considered together. We see that when when Paul talks about the church, he just kind of almost flippantly says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Like what was actually going on as they got together in the early church was people were sharing what was going on, what God was teaching them, what they were hearing. They would listen to the apostles' teaching, to the, to the word, and they would process it together. And it's, it's way better to do that. Our individualistic society gets us to where the vast majority of our devotion to the teaching of God's word is done individually. Whether you're reading the Bible or listening to a podcast or listening to a sermon, most of it is done right now. It's happening, right? Like very few of you are turning to your neighbor and starting to talk to them. It would actually be disruptive. That's how our culture is so centered around that. But, but think about it. In a sermon, I have no idea what you think about what I say. I mean, I have a little bit of an idea. Some of you have very, very expressive faces. But, but even though, even when you're nodding along, like, I get it. Sometimes you're nodding along because you're on autopilot because you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. There's no shame in this. Like, look, we're in the same boat. You're among safe people. I get it. You're thinking about other things. Your mind wanders. You kind of fall off the train and then you get back on. You're like, wait, where did, how did we get here? 
I get it. All right? Other times, though, you're actually engaged and you're thinking about what is being said and the word that's being read. And sometimes, what you're thinking about, what's being said and what's being read, is, is wrong. It's wrong. And I know this because I've had people come up to me and talk to me and say, like, ah, oh, it's just like you said in the sermon. And I'll say, I didn't say that. Or I'll think, I didn't say that. Sometimes I'll nod, thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch. <laughs> and sometimes I hear that and I say, oh, I actually didn't, I didn't say that. That was Robbie a couple, a couple weeks ago. Other times I say, ah, man, I didn't say that, but I wish I did. That's actually, that's better than what I said. That's way more insightful. And other times I think, like, I didn't say that. That's heresy and I'd get fired for that. Right? But it's only when we talk about it together and pray about it together that those kinds of things are exposed and they sink in. And we grow. And so we need to make it a priority to say, no, 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 I, I want to process this with my brothers and sisters. I need to share this. Some of you are introverts and internal processors. That's totally fine. But that might mean I'm going to journal out my thoughts and then I'm going to share them with a brother or sister. I say, hey, I... I've, I've had people do that. People who are internal processors send me like, you know, I, I've been you know, reading through 1 Peter and I just kind of wrote out journaling my thoughts and processing 1 Peter 2. And I'll just read it and it's beautiful. And sometimes there are things that, I, I, that I'll say, hey, why don't you like, think about this a little bit more? Or, Man, this is really incredible. Or I, I never thought about this before, but like as I thought about it and considered it, like, I think you're on to something really beautiful here. But however it is, we need to make it a priority to say, no, 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 this is not just individualistic, but together. And also, by the way, though, like, because some people are sitting here thinking, right, that's what I've always been saying. Everybody needs to listen to me. I want to get to a small group where I can, like, talk about what I think about the Bible. That's not what we're talking about. It's not... I don't do this to give backing to my own pursuits or a platform for me to share all of my great philosophies. But I come to that expecting to be changed. It's not that I'm looking for backing or, or confirmation for my own pursuits and my own beliefs, but that my pursuits and my beliefs might be conformed to the word. So that's why we encourage small groups and gospel communities and the like. It's not, but not as a reproduction of what we do on Sunday morning. Like, I would encourage you that as you're getting together with people, dig into the word together. Don't just reproduce what we do here on Sunday morning where you just listen and then maybe ask a couple of questions. Like, dig in together. Not to show off your own understanding, but to, to be a blessing and to be blessed by the fellowship. To be open to correction and to nuance. And the challenges. I think that's what it looked like to, for them to be devoted together to the apostles' teaching. They're also devoted, by the way, to, to the breaking of bread. And I'm not going to say a lot about that, except that it was an abiding in Christ together, remembering of Jesus together. And so part of that is communion. And I am very excited for those of you who think that we forever got rid of the tables and everything, because that always creeped you out. Don't worry, they're coming back eventually. As soon as I with a clear conscience can do it, because we're supposed to do it together. 
It was never meant to be one-on-one quiet time. If it had, Jesus would have said, when you do this, when you withdraw to your quiet place and pray, then do this. Take bread and, and wine and remember me. But he doesn't say that. He says when you're together, do this. So that's important. But it's also important the remembrance of together we remember Christ crucified. Together we remember the life, death, and resurrection of our Jesus. Together we marvel at that. This is partly just encouraging one another with the gospel on a daily basis with one another. Like in our everyday conversation, we don't have to, we don't have to organize around a small group or a gospel community to talk about the goodness of God. So we need to do that together. And he says, there, and to the prayers. And all I want to say about that is as they're devoted together to the prayers, remember that they are seeking the Holy Spirit together. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit together. They were asking for him to do these things together. Communal prayer is so important. And again, that's another thing that we have so individualized. Not saying that individual prayer is not important. It is. But in our culture, we're nailing that. I mean, the individualistic part of it anyway, but not the communal part. And so I just want to press on us a little bit of that. And then we would not just pray together, but we'd pray for heart change together. I mean, honestly, if you've been in any, I mean, if you've been in a Baptist church for very long, but I think most other churches have this thing, um, how, how big of a percentage of time when you get together for a study or any kind of group, how big of a percentage of time is spent on prayer? Big or small? This to be small, right? Like, let's just be honest. There might be some exceptions here and there, time after time, but it's typically kind of at the end, like we do a quick opening prayer, right? And then at the end, how many times have you said, ah, we're, we're out of time. We gotta, we kind of move this up. I'm the first, I'm the guiltiest. And I wonder sometimes, what are we missing? What are we missing when we come together and we say, you know what, we're just going to take some time. We're just going to cry out to God together. We're going to pray for heart transformation and for revival and for, for changes to take place, for the Holy Spirit to show up. We're not just going to pray for felt needs. Again, pray for felt needs by all means. Pray for safe travel. Pray for healing. Pray for all these things. But let's pray for more. Like when was the last time you asked for people to say, hey, I, I would like, would you, would you pray that I would experience more joy? And, and, not, and not like, I need you to pray for my joy because my husband's a moron. Like, not like that. We do that a lot, like, right? Like, I, say, I need you to pray for more joy because let me tell you about this terrible work situation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, hey, what if we said, like, would you please pray? I feel my heart slipping into bitterness. And I don't want that. I want joy. Would you please pray for me? And as people say like, oh, what's going on in your life? It doesn't matter. What matters right now is my heart is being kind of drawn over to bitterness and I want joy. Would you please plead with me and on my behalf to the spirit that he would change me? We pray together for wisdom. Pray together that the Holy Spirit would be powerfully present. 
You see the, the difference a little bit? When they're seeking God and loving God, it's not just my own personal walk with the Lord. It's not just my own personal devotion to the scriptures, my own personal devotion to remembering the cross, my own personal devotion to prayer. But it is it's a priority to say, we're gonna do I need to do this together. We need to pursue together. So they were devoted together to loving God, and they were devoted together to loving others. It's such a beautiful picture of what it actually looks like as they love one another. I just want to point out two things that I see in this passage. One is they took responsibility for one another. Now look, it's easy to look at this passage. It says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We can look at that and say, okay, well then how do we do that? Should everybody sell everything? Bring all the money right here in the center? Combine all of our checking accounts? I, I don't know what the answer is to any of that, but what I do know is the principle that we see here is they take responsibility for one another. That's different than charitable giving. Right? It's not charitable giving that I feed my child. I don't do that out of charitable giving. If you ask me, like, hey, Jay, why do you give food to your child? I'm just a charitable giver. <laughs> just, you know, generous. That's what I like to It's my responsibility. I wouldn't even understand the question. What do you mean, why do I feed my child? I need to feed my child. It's my responsibility to do so. And that's what's happening in, in the church. They, the reason they sold all their stuff, it's not just because they're free to be generous. They are, and that's what God's doing in their heart to be able to do this. But they do this because, well, of course I'm going to. This is my family. So when a plea goes out for help from, from the church, from, from our church, there's a big difference between just offering to help because you're like, ah, I've got some extra time, I can do that, and to feeling responsible. Now look, you, you can't take full responsibility in every way and everything in a church this size. It's not possible. Some of you try to do that and you run yourselves ragged and you're actually robbing joy from other people in their service. But to say, this is, goes back to that whole membership thing of saying like, I'm in, that means I take responsibility. So there should be some area, some people where you say, I'm responsible. Of course I'm going to be there. Of course I'm going to give that. Of course I'm going to do that. If you think, who do you feel responsible for at that level? And by the way, if you think about those people and all those people look like you, think like you, are in the same life stage as you, then I would just say maybe press in a little more. Because to harken back to a couple weeks ago, that's very explainable to the world. But to be responsible to those who are hard to love or whose lives and rhythms are inconvenient to me, that's different. So, they took responsibility for one another and then they, they spent time together. It was like a big earth-shattering thing. 
but it's a regular rhythm of their lives. It says day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they spent time together. There was, um, back in the 80s, way back in the 80s, um, when I was growing up, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of sociological studies that said, you know, quality time didn't really matter with kids. It's quantity time. Or no, sorry, flip that. Quantity time didn't matter. Quality time is what matters. So this phrase of quality time, that's what you want to focus on. And it kind of came apart, like, kind of with the idea of pursuing like the American dream and all this stuff. And it was done a little bit to kind of relieve those fears of people saying like, ah, I'm never around my kids. Like, you know, my kids are always like with other people. And, and, and so then they kind of swooped in, sociologists swooped in and said, don't worry, as long as the time you have with them is quality time, you're good. There's a problem with that, that they discovered later. Turns out you can't have quality time without quantity time. Turns out you can't just schedule, like anybody that's had a teenager knows you can't just like schedule a time to chat about what's going on in their life. It doesn't work that way. They will likely do it when you want to sleep. But you don't get to sit down and be like, hmm, tell me all your greatest fears and hopes and desires. Let's have some quality time for the next 15 minutes. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work in the church. See, we don't like inefficiency But we show it every time we show up to something in the church and we want it to be well organized and packaged and presented in this way that is so efficient. And if it's messy or kind of like feels like it took longer than it needed to or anything like that, then we're like, eh, it's not really for me. This isn't an uncommon thing. Uh, Robbie and I were talking about both in Dallas and Denver, we um, had churches that uh, would advertise the 29-minute sermon. Or the 29-minute service. Like in Dallas, it was the 29-minute service. I was like, I think ours was just the 29-minute sermon. Maybe, maybe it was the service. Now that I think about it, you're thinking 29-minute sermon is probably a good idea. So, um, but regardless, it was like 29-minute service. Like get in, get out, get on with your life. We package it in such a way you get all the God you needed in the most, it's like a Powerball. Like a power energy, like one of those energy balls, you know, like you just take, like the Jetsons had, like the little capsules, like a full meal, like boom, got it, go. What does that say? What does that say about us? That's not how family forms. Like you can't have that quality without the quantity. Family takes time to form. So when you show up to a, a small group or an area lunch, or what, do you expect it to already be built in or do you expect to have to contribute. I mean, think about the way this group, this early church came together from different backgrounds. It took time. Devotion to that fellowship does not look like the most efficient use of time, but the most extravagant. That's how they loved one another. They're just together all the time. And others noticed. So as they pursued God, and then they pursued others, other people noticed, and a culture was created. Acts 2.46, the, the last part of that, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I just love that phrase. 
It really doesn't fit into my outline at all. I just really love that phrase. It says something about the kind of community that they were. Just picture people who are just sitting around receiving food, receiving things with glad and generous hearts. It's winsome. Others noticed. And it says they had favor. Had favor with all the people. Of course they did. Of course they had favor with all the people. Look at how they lived. A community of people who were devoted to one another. People who had no, no responsibility naturally for one another. Taking responsibility for one another. People spending time, extravagant amounts of time with one another. Being in awe of what was happening and becoming like one another because they were becoming like Jesus. It was inexplicable and attractive. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but the Spirit empowered them to live lives that would bewilder the world. And some would mock and others would seek. And that's what's happening here. There would be people who would mock this church, but then there are others who would seek, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Because they couldn't explain it. They looked at this group of people because the world loved those who loved them, but the church loved people who were not like them. The world gave out of their excess. The church gave all that they had. The world gave time and consideration to interesting teachings and to spiritual aims, but the church was devoted to these pursuits. If that sounds familiar, it's almost as if Jesus knew what he was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, which was essentially a sermon on on how to live as children of the kingdom, not of the world, where he says the the world loves those who love them. Big deal. You love those who love you and those who hate you. The world gives to show off and to look great in front of the world. You don't give for the world. You give for the pleasure of God. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what we see in Acts 2. Them taking teachings of the apostles and the teachings of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, being completely transformed and pursuing him fully devoted together. And the life that comes out of it is a light in the midst of darkness. It is a city on a hill. And the question is, do you want it? To experience what we see in Acts will not come through little tweaks in our lives. It is a radical reorientation around the gospel and seeking God together. Listen, if you're here and you're not a believer and you're saying, I, I, look, I showed up, that's, what I'm, that's where I am right now, that's so great. I just always want to be really upfront with you and straight with you that, that what God wants from you is not church attendance. 
What he wants is to redeem your very life. To adopt you as his son or his daughter and to say you're mine and I will make you new and I will give you new desires and a new aim and a new purpose in life. And you will be forever changed and you will increase in joy for all eternity. That's what it means to devote ourselves to the teachings and to the fellowships, abiding in Jesus and prayer. We have to do it together. So I want to encourage you just to start. If that is you and you say, I want that, I do want to see that, then start somewhere. But know that it's going to be painful. It's going to take a choice to be inconvenienced, to spend extra time. And I'll just, I'll just commend three quick things to, for you to do. One is talk to people after the service. They start from small baby steps to little big, bigger steps. Just talk to somebody. Turn around after the service and say, huh, what do you think about that? Just start there. Even if you're saying, like, I don't know anything about any of this. First time I've ever heard this passage. Start there. Be humble about that and just say, like, look, I, I don't know. What do you think? Second thing you can do is go to an area lunch. That's not just some crazy program. It's just an environment to say, we've got to get people together to try to live like this. Today is Peshtigo. You came here today from Peshtigo, and you're saying, I, I wasn't planning on staying for lunch. Stay. Stay. It will be messy, it will be inefficient, it will likely be loud. Stay. Next, next week is Marinette Menominee, always the third of the, the month. First of the month is like Coleman, Lena, Okano, and all the millions of others. Right? So be a part of it. Build into it. And third is join the church. If you're saying like, look, I'm, I'm there, commit. Become a member. And look, I don't have time to, again, go into the whole idea of that. I used to be very anti-membership because it felt like country club. And then I looked in the Bible, and there's that whole pesky thing that we are members of the body. So I'm like, well, all right, that's the word they use. But we just need to redeem that word and say, no, that's, we belong to one another. That's what membership is. So come to a class. Our next one is going to be March 27th, Sunday, March 27th. Even if you're saying, like, I'm not sure if I want to join. I don't know about that come to the class and let's like discover that together. There's no pressure. Nobody like, you know, Robbie is not standing at the door making you sign a membership covenant before you like walk out. Like it doesn't happen at all. You actually, six months after that where you join the church, you get lots of time to really consider what this means. So Sunday, March 27th, after the church, we'll even provide lunch and probably childcare. Childcare, right? Sure. By the way, if you'd like to volunteer to do childcare for <laughs> membership classes, uh, talk to us after the service. Just start. Start. Read the Bible. Ask somebody about it. Pray together. Ask somebody, would you just pray with me? I've been praying this, and I, just, I would like somebody else here to pray with me for this. Just start and see what God does with it and see if we can experience what they experienced devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, with awe 
coming upon every soul, many wonders and signs being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Father, we want this. We want this and we ask together. And I don't know, Lord, how many souls in this room or online are asking this with me. But I pray, God, you would hear. Whether it's three others or 30 others or 300 others, God, you would hear the chorus of our hearts saying, we want this. And we know this will not come through our strategies or our programs, certainly through my teaching. It will only come as your people form together and seek you, Holy Spirit. And pray for wisdom and devote ourselves to the teaching of your word and devote ourselves to this fellowship and devote ourselves to praying and seeking you together. God, please convict us of the sin that is in us, the sin of being right but being so wrong, for desiring things, but not being devoted to them. And show us what it looks like. Empower us to live it. So that day by day, you might add to our number those who are being saved.